Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Alienable rights, the exclusion of African Americans in a white man's land, 1619 to 2000, is a book written by Professor Barry Sanders of Pitzer College from the Claremont Colleges and Francis D. Adams, an independent scholar living in Los Angeles, California. Sanders and Adams maintain that the drive for equal rights for black people in the United States has never had the support of the majority of Americans. Racial progress has been made in brief historical bursts when a committed militant minority of abolitionists, radical Republicans, and civil rights activists stirred the nation and pressured it into change. In this program, we visit with Dr. Francis D. Adams and begin when I asked him to explain the importance of the trial of James Somerset that took place in England in 1772. Somerset was uh, a slave to a uh, Virginia slaveholder. Uh, He had come with him to England and uh, he had escaped uh, from his uh, owner in England uh, and was uh, recovered finally, and the suit developed uh, over whether he was a free man having come to England or whether he remained a slave. Lord Mansfield was the chief justice of the King's Bench uh, who oversaw the case and finally reached a decision in relation to it, and he said that uh, Somerset was a free man having set foot in England, that uh, there was... uh, no such thing as a slave in England, he said, uh, that uh, the only way you could have slavery in England if there had been positive law, in other words, if there were uh, some sort of uh, legal situation that had created men as slaves, otherwise custom or usage uh, were not sufficient to do that. Uh, This meant that uh, about 14,000 black men who were in uh, England were suddenly free, And the question arises, of course, uh, if uh, England had freed its slaves, didn't that uh, control the situation in the colonies? Wouldn't the slaves have been free at that point? Well, that created a fork in the road that appears not to have been followed, at least in North America. Yeah, that's perfectly right. What had happened really was that uh, England over the years had given the colonies a good deal of freedom to uh, run things however they wanted to, and uh, in all of its colonies, particularly in North America, uh, the colonies had individually developed their own systems of slavery quite apart from uh, English uh, law, and they had laws that were essentially their own and that were not necessarily consistent from one colony to another. It's interesting to note that England gave its colonies significant uh, freedom and latitude in making its own rules, but Spain chose not to do that in Central and South America. Why was that? Well, that's perfectly true. One of the main reasons was the uh, English wanted to uh, didn't want to spend the money it would have cost to control the colonies, and instead they, uh, in the southern colonies at least, where uh, slavery was uh, strong, they uh, relied on... uh, uh, enterprising men who were willing to spend their own money to develop the uh, colonies, and they really only retained uh, control over trade and uh, things like uh, war, for example, if the colonies or the uh, uh, 
uh, or Britain itself had gone to war, they would expect some contribution from the colonies. The control over trade was somewhat influenced, I would expect, by allowing the colonies to uh, proceed with slavery so that there would be uh, a, f uh, a labor force for the markets that would come and the products that would come from the colonies. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, it uh, relieved the question uh, for Britain of uh, whether they approved of slavery or not, really, because the colonies then were able to do whatever they wanted to do, and the uh, British could say, well, we aren't really responsible for any of that. So why was the Somerset decision not followed in the colonies? Well, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't followed in the colonies because it simply uh, you know, wouldn't, it didn't fit what existed in the colonies. By 1772, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of slaves throughout the South, and uh, the colonial leaders certainly had no uh, desire to surrender what was the uh, mainstay of the southern, southern economy. So therefore, uh, in a, from a de facto or, or functional sense, the Somerset decision had no effect in the colonies and in North America. Yeah, really had very little effect. Uh, I mean, you know, people talked about it, and of course, uh, uh, people around the world and abolitionists are people who believed in abolition in North America uh, pointed to it as an example of what should be done in the colonies, but it had no uh, direct effect really on uh, anyone. So if we step ahead a number of years and look at the founding fathers, the uh, people who sp wrote down the words that uh, became the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, what they did at home was somewhat different than what they wrote into the Declaration and the Constitution. Uh, yeah, it certainly was, uh, particularly among uh, you know, southern members of the founding fathers who were uh, significant slaveholders. I mean, Jefferson, who wrote the uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, pri was the primary, a primary writer, at least, uh, was a significant slaveholder, as was Washington, uh, Madison, uh, all these men from the South, uh, others uh, whom, whose names we don't know quite so well, but were also members of the Constitutional Convention, men like uh, Randolph and the Pinckneys, uh, that they were all slaveholders uh, at home and maintained uh, large plantations. Do you think there was a conscious duplicity in their thinking, or was this just the way it was, and from their point of view, God willed it as that? Yeah, well, no, I, I uh, don't think it was duplicity at all. I mean, I think they had uh, faith in... Uh, the life they had constructed for themselves in uh, the New World, and, uh, you know, they rationalized it in a number of different ways. One of the things that uh, many of them argued was that uh, the Bible uh, made, you know, supported slavery, uh, that it was uh, something that existed throughout the world, and that uh, it was a matter of uh, really dealing with an inferior people uh, who were probably better off as slaves than they had been in Africa. Well, that's one thesis that has been presented on uh, this program, that the Puritan interpretation that people of color were an inferior group actually affected the thinking and the development in terms of a progression toward equality to a greater extent than did the southern uh, slaveholders' economic interest. Do you find any support for that? 
Well, it's certainly true. I think of it as you know two great forces that gave the colonists sense of themselves as a chosen people. On the one hand, in New England, you have uh, Puritanism. With it goes a belief, after all, that the Puritans were a chosen people who were going to purify the church. Uh, they had been given this paradisical new continent in which to create a kind of new Jerusalem, and consequently, they were chosen by God. That made them better than everyone else in the world. Therefore, they had a sense of inferiority about many people, and particularly about blacks. Cotton Mather, for example, kept house slaves, and he treated them well, educated them, something that slaveholders in the South wouldn't do. He also writes about, in his household, having to be on guard all the time because it was known by everyone that uh, blacks were naturally thievish. There was a second kind of superiority, too, uh, that probably was stronger in the South, and uh, that was the belief that the men who came to North America were carrying on the tradition of the Anglo-Saxons and that they themselves were a continuation of the Anglo-Saxon race. And in uh, continental history, the Anglo-Saxons were viewed as a pure race who had never been adulterated by mixing with anyone else. Uh, they were a powerful moral race who had lived uh, an almost idyllic life on the continent. And uh, Jefferson, as a matter of fact, when he argued uh, for the right of the colonies to uh, break away from England, he did it on the basis of uh, the fact that they were continuation of uh, Anglo-Saxons, and as Anglo-Saxons, they weren't governed by uh, laws that the uh, English crown had, con uh, had constructed to uh, govern the Normans who had invaded England. Uh, those were feudal laws that uh, meant that the king essentially owned all the land and granted it to uh, uh, to his vassals. Uh, in the case of the Anglo-Saxons, they maintained that the land was theirs by conquest and that the, the king never owned the land, that wh whatever fealty they gave to the king uh, was based on their willingness to do it. And so if the Southerners, Jefferson in particular, was a great uh, fan of the uh, Anglo-Saxons, and uh, they believed simply that uh, they were chosen people, again, of a different type, but uh, certainly they were superior to the inferior African-American or black. When we take a look at the uh, founding documents of the United States, again, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, there's a schism as to the rights of black people. Can you discuss the origin of that? Well, in the uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, it, it says that uh, all men are endowed with inalienable rights, which means they have rights that they are given, uh, that they are born with, and that uh, come directly from God, and that all men share those rights. And that was uh, the assertion made in the Declaration of Independence. And it was uh, a fine statement in relation to uh, Great Britain and separating yourself uh, from the English, because what it said was the colonists had a right to break away from England if they wanted to because freedom was a right that was given to all men by God. Uh, by the time you got to the Constitution, uh, freedom was no longer the issue, if you will. Yet before they got to the Constitution and even before the Declaration of Independence in 1776, we have the Somerset decision. Yeah, except the Somerset decision had very little to do with the uh, North American continent. None of the colonies uh, took the Somerset decision so seriously that they acted on it. 
proceeding with the Constitution and the development of the Constitution? The Constitutional Convention opened with a need to make the uh, government a stronger government. The Articles of Confederation, under which the uh, colonies operated since the time of the Revolution, uh, there was no real central control in it. There was no powerful central government. Uh, It allowed each colony uh, an equal vote in any decision that the Confederation was going to reach. And what that meant was that any colony could, in effect, veto any action by the uh, whole 13 colonies or the the Confederation. What they found was that they were really unable to function very well internationally. They didn't have a single currency. There were a number of things that made them very difficult for them to simply function as a nation. And as a matter of fact, Alexander Hamilton said just that, that they would be weak and powerless until the point at which they formed a strong central government. And that was really the point of the uh, Constitutional Convention, to try to bring together the 13 colonies and create a uh, single nation that had a stronger central government. Let's talk about the development and the effects of the Constitutional Convention on African Americans in the United States. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Francis D. Adams, an independent scholar who lives in Southern California, who, with Professor Barry Sanders, is the author of Alienable Rights, The Exclusion of African Americans in a White Man's Land, 1690-2000. through 2000. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Francis Adams, the development of the Constitution ignored the fact that all men are created equal, and in fact didn't even mention women didn't mention slaves, as a matter of fact, never would use the term in the document. Said they called them people serving others, uh, or just referred to them simply as people, but the word slave never appeared in the The reason for that, most people think, is that they were really embarrassed, in a way, about the situation and didn't want to include the, uh, the existence of slavery in the National Constitution. I think it also had to do with the economics of the time and the labor force in the South, that was a non-industrial area, an agricultural area. There were no minutes taken at the Constitutional Convention that were at least made public for uh, you know, another 40 years. James Madison kept his own notes of the Constitution, and they have become really the primary document that we use to see what was actually said. And one thing that Madison points out is that very quickly it became clear to the delegates that the major division in the in the convention was between the slaveholding southern states and the northern states that were free and uh, much of the attention from that point on at the convention was focused on working out a compromise that would allow the north and the south to form a single union and work together because the south was uh, very reluctant uh, to enter into a compact with the north because they were afraid northerners wanted to eliminate slavery. By uh, 1784, New England had already ended slavery and a movement to get rid of it in the middle states, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, was afoot. South was frightened by uh, this fact. Even though New England chose to end slavery in many jurisdictions, the concept of superiority that flowed from the Puritan interpretation of the Bible still remained. You agree? Yeah, oh, of course, yeah. And as a matter of fact, the point of our book, 
ultimately is that concept of superiority still uh, exists throughout most of the white community in America today. Well, let's move forward to today and discuss how that concept is seen and applied. Seen from you, a white professor, and seen from a black person. Well, one of the very interesting things we've found is that we originally, when we wrote the book, we intended it for uh, white people. I mean, that's what we really thought our audience, uh, you know, that our audience would be uh, primarily whites. And what we hoped to do was awaken whites to our own history and suggest that the white community has and continues to have a responsibility in relation to blacks, in relation to the way in which they've been disadvantaged in this society, and should consider doing something about it. What we found among whites is most of them uh, really don't want to hear that message. Most of them resist it uh, pretty strongly. Most African Americans, on the other hand, like the book, and uh, what they say, in effect, is that it lays out a history of what they understand viscerally in their own experience, that uh, indeed the whites still consider blacks inferior and do very little to uh, give them equality in this society. Notwithstanding the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement a hundred years later? Notwithstanding those things. As a matter of fact, what we say is that there have been three great moments in American history when blacks have made great surges, great advancement. The first was after the Revolutionary War, second was after the Civil War, and the third was uh, you know, associated with the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. After the uh, Revolutionary War, what happened was there were about uh, oh, 80 to 100,000 free blacks suddenly created because... Uh, they were men who had fought with the Continental Army. The prize they had been given for fighting uh, against the British uh, was their freedom. And so you suddenly had this large number of free blacks all over American society. The natural thing to think would be that, well, they were free, and there's a paradigm that says you are free or you are slave, and so these men then, because they were free, would have uh, equal rights with white citizens. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. What they quickly found is uh, they were treated not like uh, white citizens, but as a new class, really, throughout then the uh, early 18th century to the middle of the 18th century. Blacks, for example, could not get passports in this country. They could not travel abroad unless they had recommendation of a white person in power that would uh, help them get an American passport. Uh, they were not allowed uh, to work in uh, many uh, civil service positions, for example. They were denied uh, the opportunity to work in uh, uh, postal jobs as postal carriers because it was feared by Southerners that they would carry uh, messages of abolition into the South, and they didn't want that to happen. By the 1740s, a man named Hugh Laguerre, who was the Attorney General of the United States, dealt with this situation in a case that involved the homesteading rights in the territories, that there was a question of whether blacks should be given free land as whites were given in the territories. Aliens were excluded from this right. They had no right to free land in the territories, but whites did. What Laguerre finally said was that blacks were not aliens. They had been here for a long time, and so they did have homesteading rights. But in order to give them the homesteading rights, he didn't say they had the same rights as white citizens. What he said was 
They were a third category, and he called that category denizens. They were denizens of the land, meaning they had inhabited here for a long period of time, but they were not citizens. And that indeed was pretty much the judgment that stood up until the time of Dred Scott. And what that said, Dred Scott said the same thing, that blacks had no legal rights in U.S. courts because they were not citizens. Point being, really, there was this great surge after the Civil War in which a number of blacks were freed. They were not given the rights of white citizens. They were not free men in this country. There were uh, laws that limited them in uh, every direction in which they turned. Well, let's move to the present time, 2005. African-Americans have made progress. In too many cases, though, it's reflected by the progress of a small group of people who have been concentrated in entertainment and athletics. Those African-Americans certainly have done well. But what we're concerned about is uh, the failure of the white community to address uh, the issue of the bulk of African-Americans, particularly those who are stuck in uh, ghetto situations. What you have to remember when you think about African Americans is that of all the uh, different groups that, that have come to the United States one way or another, all of the other groups have come with a sense of hope and a sense that they could better themselves economically and that they could make a better life for themselves. Blacks, on the other hand, came here in chains uh, without hope. And uh, what we have found at every point at which they've Uh, seem to have a moment of hope, those three instances that we were talking about a moment ago, it's taken away by the white community very quickly. That hope is, uh, you know, taken from them, and they're stuck with the same situation. And what I believe, this country, we think of a place like South Africa, had a formal reconciliation process that it put in place. The U.S., we had a reconciliation process after the Civil War, but it was reconciliation between Southern and Northern whites, ultimately. And uh, we never really created a, a similar reconciliation with blacks. Uh, blacks have always asked for three things at each of these three moments in history, and those are education, land, and the right to vote. Uh, again and again, they've simply been denied those things, and though I doubt if most people realize it, but in this country currently there's something like 7 million African-American children uh, living in extreme poverty. That means uh, not poverty, not that you're poor, but it means that a family of three has less than $7,000 a year to live on. I regard it as simply a travesty that we allow citizens of our country, people who are protected or supposedly protected by a constitution, that guarantees equal rights to all citizens, uh, that we allow people to be living in a situation like that. How do you see the change uh, being fomented? You know, we began this book when the Clinton administration was in power, and race, it seemed, was moving to the forefront as an issue that we were perhaps going to face. I think uh, Clinton himself and his administration were much more aware of it than the uh, current administration we have. It's been, frankly, a disappointment to us uh, to see the reaction uh, of the Bush people to the issue of race. I don't think anything is forever, and I don't think the uh, current administration will be there forever, and I would hope ultimately the nation as a country, as a government, would uh, take seriously uh, its obligation to uh, provide equality to all its citizens. How would you articulate the way that could be done? What I think has to be done, really, is uh, return 
something like uh, the 1960s and uh, a government program that was akin to the uh, movement created then and the, the things that were put in place by the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and by the uh, Voter Registration Act the following year. In 64, at Howard University, Lyndon Johnson spoke, and he said that if you take a man to the start of a race who's been in chains for 200 years, and you remove the chains, and then you say to him, well, now you're able to compete equally with everyone else. Uh, Johnson said, you're, you're lying to him if you believe that man is capable of competing with everyone else in that condition. And what you have to provide, in effect, was compensatory programs for a period of time to allow him to reach a degree of equality. And then you have a society in which equality prevails. And what Johnson said uh, following that was what it's going to take for this to happen is willing hearts on the part of whites in this country. And it seems to me what we haven't had are those willing hearts. So you're saying that almost two generations later, it's time for the hearts to be willing. Well, I'm saying that uh, we have to uh, create a situation in, whites, in which whites understand their responsibility. Naive people that we were, we hope that uh, a book like ours, if the white community would uh, read the book, they'd be more likely uh, to take up a responsibility which we believe is firmly theirs. I mean, in this country, we talk so much about responsibility that we simply you know, rely on those characteristics which we regard as American and uh, the best examples of what our society can do and assume our responsibility and do for, for uh, the other citizens in this society what we expect for ourselves. Francis Adams, co-author with Professor Barry Sanders of Alienable Rights, the Exclusion of African Americans in a White Man's Land, 1619 to 2000. I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious and ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. There's a book uh, that I'm just reading that uh, I'm very excited about called Collapses by Jared Diamond. Uh, and it's a book about what brings societies down. You know, what is it that uh, causes societies to fail? What Diamond says, in effect, it isn't natural disasters. It isn't uh, thing like, things like tsunamis and volcanic explosions. It's the ideas that a society holds the power with which they grasp onto those ideas. And he talks about uh, places like Easter Island and particularly about uh, a group of uh, Norse pioneers who went to Greenland centuries ago and uh, created a society there that lasted for four or five hundred years. And it was a society built around uh, things like uh, beef and milk products. And what uh, Diamond points out is that uh, after about uh, 400 years, their uh, livestock denuded the uh, land of all the uh, grazable grass. Their animals began to starve to death. Finally, uh, they were down to eating the uh, young calves that they normally would create their new herd from because they simply were starving to death. And then finally the society disappeared. And the point that was uh, so important to me was Diamond said they were surrounded by an ocean of fish, and yet the places they've excavated there, they find no fish bones. They never turn to this other supply of food because they were so oriented toward their cultural belief in a kind of society that lived off land animals 
that they allowed the society to die out, not intentionally, but the society died out because they uh, stayed with what they knew. And I mean, I think this is a a wonderful insight into uh, the way societies falter, and in fact, uh, one that perhaps has some application to our current America. Francis Adams, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you for uh, having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Francis D. Adams is the co-author, along with Professor Barry Sanders, of Alienable Rights, The Exclusion of African Americans in a White Man's Land, 1619-2000. The book he recommends is Collapse by Jared Diamond. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.